If you want to understand the international competitive dynamics of artificial intelligence, particularly the US and China, starting with the United Nations is probably not a bad move. And this week, we speak with Irakli Baritza, who is actually the head of the Center for Artificial Intelligence and Robotics at the UN, uh, particularly under the, the wing called Unicree, which is kind of a crime and justice division of the United Nations. And Irakli was kind enough to invite me to speak at a recent event in Shanghai, held by the UN and by the Shanghai Institutes for International Studies on national security. And when we were there, we talked a good deal about the strengths and the unique strengths of China as opposed to the strengths of the United States when it comes to developing artificial intelligence and when it comes to putting it into action. Uh, this is a man who's on more airplanes than most and who kind of thinks pretty deeply about the political and social implications of these technologies on the international scene. And I thought I'd interview Irakli after we got to shake hands and catch up again at the UN event around his take on sort of the, the strengths of the ecosystem in China for artificial intelligence and how that stacks up against the US. And in addition to that, I asked Irakli about what it's going to look like to encourage more and more multilateral action. In other words, how do we get uh, countries to be on the same page, that AI doesn't become sort of this, this arms race, quote unquote, although that statement is already being thrown around, but maybe it becomes something that people of all nations sort of understand as a great power and understand as something that maybe could do good, and maybe slough off some of the tendency towards the arms race dynamic, so to speak, on the international sphere. Certainly not that many people that have a really great perspective on that. It's really early days, but if anyone, I thought Irakli would have a take, and he certainly did. So if you're curious as to the US and China dynamics, as to what makes for a fruitful AI ecosystem in the first place, and for some of the political considerations around the future and, and how international collaboration might come about, this should be a fun interview. So without further ado, I'm Dan Figella. You're listening to AI and Industry, and this is Irakli with the United Nations. So Irakli, I know that you know we got to see each other actually out in Shanghai. We've talked a good deal about these topics. I wanted to begin with your thoughts on maybe some of the strengths of the AI ecosystem in China. What what maybe is helping them proliferate not only the, the technical side of, of AI, but really being able to, to apply these things and bring them to life. What do you see those strengths as from your perspective? Dan, thanks a lot, first of all, for initiating this. And thanks for coming out to Shanghai. Your contribution there was fantastic. And Thank you, buddy. I'm really happy to, you know, be associated with you as well. So we will we have a long way to go working together on a number of issues and Indeed. projects uh, one day as well. Now, as far as the, your question, look, I mean, China is a huge country. It's a big country with one of the strongest economies in the world. By growth, I think it's right now number two economy in the world by population is number one and it's a big, diverse, strong country. Now, as far as the AI is concerned, China was one of the first countries in the world which adopted the AI national strategy back in 2016 already. And yep. 17, they developed it. They announced their ambition to uh, dominate the world with these technologies. <laughs> and uh, by doing that, they will be investing a lot of funds and a lot of knowledge and a lot of efforts in doing so. And one of their biggest strengths is that they have government, private sector, and academia working hand-in-hand in, hand in achieving these goals. Their national strategy facilitates that their investment strategy facilitates that, and the private sector also is fully buying into this issue. Mm -hmm. The same thing from the private sector and the same thing from the government. So that's like a really a big, powerful strength they have, right? At the same time, 
China has a huge population and uh, having a huge population means they have big number of users and big number of data which they can acquire and analyze to develop further and to make AI even more powerful. Yeah. Right? Yeah, for sure. And, and obviously, the, there's more people kind of coming online in China, right? I mean, there's sort of the coastal areas that as developed as, as any other city, I suppose, in many regards. And then there's the other sort of domains in, in China. But I suppose year by year, there's probably astronomically more people with mobile phones. And, you know, I know India maybe is going through a faster growth period now because they're just turning on. But to your point, I mean, what, what is what is Mandarin? Number one or number two most spoken language in the world or something like that. So the, the user volume in one geo area is pretty undeniable. It is true. And then if you look at, for example, WeChat, which is the Chinese version of WhatsApp, it has almost 1 billion users. Yeah. I mean, this is a big number and it accumulates a big data and they have the capability to analyze the data because their computing power is also powerful. And plus the algorithms which Chinese based intellectuals and people are developing also is supporting that process. I want to touch on what you had brought up about the kind of top-down, you know, alignment from the government, this initiative. You know, I've had some folks mention its importance. I've had other folks maybe in the startup world be like, ah, you know, I don't know how it affects me. But I've had other startups say it does affect them. You know, the, the alignment between academia, between the government, what does this really kind of mean and look like? In other words, I think people know like, oh, well, you know, the government has a lot of sway and they can sort of get academia and the business world to sort of get on the same page. What does get on the same page mean? I mean, practically speaking, what are those forces, those, what do those alignments do that, that makes it potentially a formidable kind of alliance? I mean, obviously, some of the results we yet have to see because this has just started now. And, yeah, maybe uh, a year of real traction uh, or whatever, yes. Yes, have actually some time to wait to see whether this would bring uh, results. Our meeting has also demonstrated there, and what Chinese scholars were talking about, is that that type of alliance between government, between private sector and academia, does bring sort of a unified vision, which they believe can actually yield into positive results for Chinese economy and also for the devel development and for the innovation. You know, I have heard some folks say that just the knowledge that the government is so behind it sort of breathes a degree of confidence maybe into folks heading into academia or heading into the private sector. It sort of, you know, maybe maybe makes them feel like this is more the thing to do or that, you know, funding will maybe be more available. And so there's like that undercurrent of national confidence in the tech. When I think in the U.S., that's just startup life. Uh, it's not necessarily confidence that comes from on high. But I think in China, they're building that momentum and many people have noted it. The second question I wanted to, I guess, run by Iraqli just from your own take. You know, you've been to China on a great number of occasions for, for the United Nations, have some understanding of sort of their you know, economies ups and downs and, and, you know, what's going on in the tech sector, obviously AI is your focus, you know, in terms of domains of improvement, you know, when it comes to where China's headed and, and the things that, that maybe they'll need to work on things that may be relative to, to some parts of the West might be, you know, weaker domains of innovating and applying AI. What are some of those, some of those that, that maybe they're working on now or, or need to be working on? I think that, I mean, China will not be any different than any other larger economies in the world who are investing in this technology like artificial intelligence, because right now we see a big push in the European Union. European Union has developed their national strategy and uh, countries individually and together UK is doing great deal, United States, yeah. although it doesn't have the national strategy, yeah. but it is still by far the largest contributor of the development in artificial intelligence by having presence of 
of giant companies from the private sector, obviously, an accumulation of unbelievable amount of data and its analysis. So therefore, I don't think that China would be any different. Uh, they will be developing in all sorts of different ways, like in other uh, countries, sectors like healthcare, for example, transportation, energy will be benefiting a lot the same way as security, for example, which we have a great deal of focus and which we are working on from our center as well, like looking at issues of how uh, law enforcement agencies could use AI and how criminals could use it and how this could be counteracted by the uh, relevant authorities in the country. So I think that all of these sectors will be developed uh, more or less in a simultaneous way because in the large countries, they will be going in a diversified way rather than picking one or two sectors. While in smaller economies or smaller countries, they, they don't have a luxury of going everywhere. Yeah. So, okay. So you see China maybe having the ability to try to bleed AI into everything while maybe a Luxembourg or, you know, Switzerland may or may not have the same capacity to do so from kind of a top down level. Is this what you're kind of saying? I mean, for example, when uh, United Arab Emirates announced um, the appointment of the Minister of Artificial Intelligence and their huge funding, they also chose some strategic directions. And their announcement was that although UAE is a, a very wealthy country having a large economy, it still doesn't have a luxury of going everywhere on AI, but they just chose some strategic directions. But in country like China, I think that uh, they do have a luxury of having a big economy, at one point maybe becoming even the largest economy in the world, which uh, could have a luxury of going everywhere in every sector and using it and later on to see how and uh, which sectors they would be sort of picking more. Yeah. And we had heard to some degree, you'd mentioned the US has this preponderance of giant tech firms. Obviously, China has its own giants that are emerging, but you know we're not necessarily you know, at the same level as, let's say, the U.S. in terms of an overall tech development, although the, the economy is newer and they're obviously, you know, catching up in a major way. We heard when, when I was there with you in Shanghai, one of the professors in China, I think his last name was Chen, mentioned the sort of talent disparity, maybe in part because of that, that a lot of the research institutions are, you know, in the States or potentially some places in Europe. A lot of the big firms started there. And so we've had this momentum of talent that still kind of hasn't been bridged. Is there anything you've seen, and maybe not, and that's fine, but is there anything you've seen from China's perspective on how they're aiming to address that? You know, the gap in terms of relative density of true AI expertise, people who know what they're doing in this field. Yeah, I think it's a great question, Dan, because you see, obviously right now, US is attracting uh, more talent. US has fantastic universities, fantastic companies, and people are attracted to come there. What what I've seen in China, and this is also exemplified in their strategy as well, is that they are also now trying to attract talent from different parts of the world. Their companies, uh, as well as academic institutions alike, are also issuing scholarships or uh, uh, competitive, let's say, salary packages for Western uh, expertise to come and work on uh, development of these technologies in China. Uh, They're also working on retention of their talent within yeah. the country. So not to allow Chinese expertise to go outside as well. And I think that this trend will continue. Uh, they will see the results coming out of this strategy. I think more funding will be available to go to the Chinese universities as scholarships, more uh, competitive salaries will be available for the people to work in Chinese companies and more sort of flexible uh, attitude towards attracting the talent will be implemented there as well. And I can see that trend continuing in foreseeable future, definitely. 
Yeah, maybe there's aspects of that, you know, for the people tuned in. Maybe there's aspects of uh, those strategic things that apply to other countries, other large companies. I think it's interesting to see, you know, how are strengths and weaknesses playing their way out at this national strategy level? And hopefully some of those things transfer to the folks tuned in who are running companies or considering what's what's up with their own country. Absolutely. Speaking of kind of international dynamics, I guess, Iraqli, you know, this is mm-hmm. your world, You've done this for quite some time in, in sort of different facets of security on an international level. There is some, you know, talk of kind of the dynamics between, you know, the US and China or, or you know, the West and the East or however it's often framed. Sometimes it's framed in maybe an exaggerated kind of, you know, conflict fashion. Maybe sometimes it's seen as maybe healthy competition, but regardless, it seems as though it makes sense from a perspective of international peace and and collaboration to really foster multilateral efforts, to really foster a perspective of the people in in different countries to sort of find equitable applications of these technologies and maybe build an aggregately better world as opposed to maybe militarily stronger individual nations. Tough dynamics because everybody has to have their own interests in mind. But at the same time, I think there is good reason to to sort of foster a peaceful and generally prosperous world. And it's, it's much easier said than done, particularly from an outsider like me and you who do not run countries. When you think about the factors that maybe you're most optimistic about encouraging that kind of cosmopolitan spirit in the domain of AI and security. What are those things that maybe, you know, you hope will get that job done that'll foster that general sense of same teamedness in the species as we build very, very capable tech in the decades ahead? First of all, we live in a completely interdependent world right now, right? So we have one internet, which is providing a huge platform of cooperation for billions of people. And we are not living any longer in uh, isolated worlds, even prior to Internet, when we had the Cold War 30, 35 years ago, when some sort of information vacuum was possible. Right now, this era is gone, and the only way to actually prosper and only way to get benefits is uh, fostering this interdependency and helping each other to build better world, right? I mean, I'm sounding extremely optimistic right now. There are a number of channels which is happening and which gives me the sense of this optimism. We have many levels of cooperation between big countries on technologies like artificial intelligence, for example. We have scientific cooperations going on. We have participation of Chinese or American or European private companies' expertise and academics in each other's events and in each other's collaborations, So, which is, uh, which is really important. For example, if you take Wuzhen Summit, which is uh, one of the biggest internet summits held in China every year, last year I was fortunate to participate there as a speaker in one of the working groups and sessions. And over there, we had the CEO of, for example, Apple speaking there and CEO of Cisco Systems speaking there alongside with the CEO of Alibaba and Baidu. So it was a very high level cooperation among tech companies. Obviously, political climates can change, political climates can affect certain dynamics, but I still see this as a short-term hiccups rather than long-term problems. Because unless we will be living in uh, isolated worlds, like where we were living hundreds of years ago, we will not have that kind of occurrences. Yeah. And I I guess I appreciate the optimism. I hope to share in more of it. You know, you mentioned the Mujin Summit or what have you there. And I know there's a number of you know, kind of grander collaborations. Obviously, the event that you and I, you know, were at it in Shanghai was with the the Shanghai Institutes of International, International Studies. Studies. From what I from what I'm familiar, yeah. And, and so, the, you know, they have 
an interest in this. And many of the speakers from China, even if they didn't speak English, had a pretty clear interest, apparently, in multilateral effort in some way. Is part of this just a function of exposure? You know, is part of this just a function of do all the academics kind of know each other and see each other as decent people and collaborate on stuff? And do the business people know each other and see each other as people and collaborate on stuff? And the political people, you know, is, is part of this just just an osmosis question of, you know, can we just touch base? Can we build more good reasons to like and learn from one another? Like is at a high level, is that a big part of the dynamic or are there undercurrent aspects of what has to happen there to really make that turn into something, to really turn into kind of a cosmopolitan spirit? Yeah, it's a great deal of this kind of cooperation. Obviously, academics know each other. Some may not know personally, but they've read each other's papers. They do participate in scientific uh, conferences and research. It is not uncommon that Chinese scholars go and study in the United States or they do their degrees or have the type of collaboration. Or as a matter of fact, they go to Europe as well and uh, vice versa. As I was sort of emphasizing earlier right now in the era of Internet, this is not that difficult to have access to so much research and so much collaboration when something is published today in Boston is read uh, the same minute in Shanghai or Beijing and vice versa. And that provides sort of a lot of breath for optimism as well. The same thing is happening in the tech world. Obviously, there is a lot of competition. There could be some tensions involved and some could be caused by certain sort of a political um, climate. So overall, if you look at it, I don't see the trend is that bad and actually the trend most likely will continue for greater collaboration and greater exchange of knowledge. Obviously, there will be differences in understanding of certain issues and approaches. And this is something, I mean, you can't say somebody's wrong, somebody's right. But at the same time, when we have more of these kind of collaborations, what we did, for example, in Shanghai together, yet another bridge we built there. And this is a permanent bridge where we're going to have a permanent dialogues. And we will be continuing these events. We will be bringing next one in Europe another one possibly in the United States, and then we will circulate and make this interesting triangle between European-based U.S. and China. Yeah, well, uh, fingers crossed on that, and I'm certainly looking forward to it. I think to your point, and we can end on this, I think there isn't really a slowdown in that momentum. So despite maybe some of the differences in understanding and despite maybe some of the international tensions around you know hacking occurrences or whatever the case may be, I think writ large, there, there certainly is a swelling of exchange. And yeah. you know hopefully that fosters all the things we'd want it to. And I think with some deliberate effort, hopefully that's the case. So Irakli, that's all that we had for time. But I, I sincerely appreciate you sharing your insights on kind of the international dynamics of AI here on AI and industry. So thanks again. Thank you, Dan, very much. And always ready to share my thoughts with you. That's all for this episode on the AI and Industry Podcast, where we explore the applications and implications of AI in your business or industry. And when it comes to those benefits of real insight in terms of artificial intelligence applications in business, this show is really just the tip of the iceberg. AI and Industry is produced by Tech Emergence, and over at techemergence.com, you can find actionable industry-specific coverage, including case studies, unique market research with charts and graphs, 
and regular coverage of the AI applications of both the hottest startups here in the Bay Area, as well as what Fortune 500 companies are doing with AI today. Everything from marketing and advertising, business intelligence, to specific industries like finance and healthcare, you can stay ahead of the curve and stay on the right side of disruption by visiting techemergence.com. And when you're there, make sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter on the left-hand side of the page. Uh, most of our podcast listeners get our, the episodes directly to their inbox every week. You'll be joining tens of thousands of other business leaders who join us from all over the world to stay ahead of the curve of AI in their specific industry. So that's techemergence.com. Uh, I'm Dan Figella. This is AI and Industry, and we'll catch you next week.